It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Greg Gutfeld. I'm Martha McCallum. I'm Brett Baer, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, September 29th, 2023. I'm Chris Foster. Republicans running for president who aren't former President Trump are trying to win the support of more voters and donors who've been reluctant to commit. you got to think that a lot of donors are thinking about that that way, about the entire field short of Donald Trump, because there hasn't been the one person that everyone's coalesced around like a lot of people thought. We're speaking with Fox News Sunday host Shannon Bream. I'm Dave Anthony. Retailers call it shrink. The rest of us call it theft. And it's on the rise with looting and smash and grab robberies prompting some stores to close for good. These are businesses, not charities. What are they supposed to do? Just keep a store open forever and lose money and and worse, let their people get hurt? And I'm Jason Rantz. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Republican presidential candidates come away from their second debate hoping for some momentum. Some came on Fox, former Vice President Mike Pence. I think Republican voters are going to choose conservatism, and if they do, they'll know where to look. They're not talking about Trump. They're talking about who's going to take us forward, and that's why I think we need a new generational leader. We can't keep looking at the old news from the past. We've got to go forward. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. we got to get this right. We see the country's in decline. Uh, we can't just be content with managing this decline. We've got to reverse it. There were seven candidates on stage instead of eight at the first debate. With one less person on the stage, you have slightly more room to spread around. I I feel like Tim Scott watched the first debate and was like, all right, I got to take the gloves off and get myself into the scrum a little bit more. And that's what he was doing last night. Fox News Sunday host Shannon Bream. I got a lot of reaction from people who are not quite as dialed in as you and I and our colleagues are really going through the minutia of this every day saying, what is Tim Scott doing? What, I, tell him to stop talking. I got a text from a family member <laughs> who thought that he was a little bit over the top. And this person really loves Tim Scott. So um, we'll see whether it gains him people or turns some people off. It's interesting because a lot of people, I think the first debate, the reaction to Mike Pence was like, whoa, where was this guy? And in some ways, he got positive reviews for that. But remember, the more that people get to know you, uh, your favorables and unfavorables both move. We've seen this in a big way with Vivek Ramaswamy and that people sort of didn't know who he was. He comes out of the gate with that first debate and his recognition, name recognition goes up. His favorables went up, but his unfavorables went up even further. So um, by percentage. So, you know, there's risk in stepping out of what people think they know about you. Yeah, uh, Nikki Haley is one who seems to have been gaining some ground since the first debate. And, you know, it's a little too early to tell about what happened in the second. But how far are we, do you think, from any sort of culling where people start dropping out? The third debate, for example, is going to be harder mm-hmm. to get into. Uh, last I checked, only four people would qualify at this point and call it three because Donald Trump's probably not going to show up again. Right. Um, gosh, I mean, they continue to hammer these early states like they have to. Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. She's had real movement in New Hampshire, where in some polling, she's in second place there. So she was the first one to get in in earnest and really hit the campaign trail and get out there. And she's always been sort of the workhorse of this group. Like, I'm going to go to every Elks Lodge. I'm going to show up whether it's three people or 300 people. 
that's always been her philosophy. Like, I'm not going to really worry about the polling and the pundits for too much because I know that this is a long haul game. She also really loves debates. It's not intimidating to her. She she enjoys the back and forth. She likes policy. So I think she and her team had kind of always been aiming towards this debate season. Like, if we can just get there and make those minimum polling requirements, people are going to see her in a different way. So I think they're hoping to just continue building on where she's at. Um, But I think she's getting a very serious look from a lot of people who prior to the debate, summertime, not really into the finite details of this thing. They're seeing her with fresh eyes. Some candidates just stay in the race uh, until the money runs out. And Mm -hmm. um, third quarter fundraising is just about over um, now, the end of September. uh, And those numbers could inspire other donors to either join in you know, and and get on a bandwagon or say, geez, I'm not going to throw my money at a losing cause. Mm -hmm. And you got to think that a lot of donors are thinking about that that way, about the entire field short of Donald Trump, because there hasn't been the one person that everyone's coalesced around like a lot of people thought DeSantis would be. I mean, he's still the the number two guy in most every poll, but not all of them. And there's been whispers. There have been articles about Nikki Haley that the donor class is seeing her now as their next best chance at going after Trump. She and her team will continue to point out, too, that in the head to head polling, she does better against Biden than anybody else in the GOP field. So they feel a real sense of momentum. And there is a lot of chatter that donors are feeling the same way about her. Yeah. And if you ask about around the Biden campaign privately, I bet you'll I bet you'll hear a lot of people say that she's the one that uh, that at this point that they may be most fear um, mm-hmm. at this point. Shannon, it's unclear if there's going to be a government shutdown on Sunday. Mm-hmm. You'll still do your show regardless. Uh, they the will gov- not shut down our right. show even <laughs> if the government shuts down. Uh, you know, it, it seems that to me like a shutdown. I was talking with a, with a colleague uh, here in the newsroom. Um, the second the Republicans won the House with such a small margin, it seemed like, yep, just put it on your calendar. Um, there's going to be a shutdown. Oh, yeah. There's going to be a shutdown. And, and now it looks like we're almost here. Right. And remember the 15 rounds of voting to get to Kevin McCarthy as speaker. There were a lot of extractions uh, from the House Freedom Caucus, from his, some of the most conservative members of the party in order to get him to that platform. So there's a lot of consternation because you think there are people within his party that are a no vote on any number of things. So how you get a coalition with such a tiny majority is going to be the greatest test of him so far as a speaker. I don't see any way we don't get to a a shutdown by Sunday because there are CR measures and more than that spread of that margin over in the House number of members who say, I'm not voting for CR in any way, shape or form. He's trying to sweeten the deal by saying, "Okay, let's put a lot of tough border funding in there. Um, Last night, they were fighting over stripping out Ukraine funding from the defense bill. I mean, there are so many different threads to this thing. And I think absent a miracle, yes, we hit another government shutdown on Sunday. And even if he makes enough concessions to win over those, whatever it is, relatively few, in fact, uh, members of his own caucus, it's going to be something that can pass the Senate and and then the President Biden can sign off on. And that's a really, really narrow mm-hmm. path. That's a very heavy lift because we do have numerous splits within the GOP. You've got them on the House side. You've got them between the House and Senate. I mean, um, Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy don't seem to be on the same page about 
you know, a few key issues that are going to make it really hard to get something passed. You know, a couple nights ago, the Senate gets um, resoundingly, I think 77 to 19, they get a CR passed that the House leadership basically said is dead on arrival. It's not going to go anywhere. So I was at a fundraising event for cancer research and I was seated between two Democratic members of the House and they were leaving because they had to go and, and fight in the rules committee about these, you know, preparations measures that are, you know, they're, they're inching along, but it, the resolution is just not there. And these guys, you know, say to me, this is why America hates Washington, yeah. because this is the kind of stuff that they look from the outside and say, why can't they get it together? I can't run my budget this way at home. Right. Uh, yeah. And I was speaking with um, Transportation Secretary Buttigieg the other day about all this. And I said, look, a lot of people, these shutdowns seem to happen every other year. And I think at some point mm -hmm. there's fatigue where people say like, oh, whatever, there's just so much dysfunction, but it doesn't affect my life unless I'm a, you know, unless I'm a government worker living paycheck to right. paycheck, who cares? And he was making the case to me that, no, there's a lot of stuff under the surface that does get affected by by these shutdowns. Yeah. And you'll hear that from the administration every day. They're pointing out different sectors of society that would be impacted. Of course, Secretary Buttigieg is going to talk about transportation. Do you want, you know, TSA backups? Do you want flight problems? Listen, we have those already, so don't don't try to pin them on the government shutdown totally, but that certainly would not make them better. Um, but I think that the real difficult conversations come when you think about members of our military, like you said, the federal workers and people who, yes, they will get paid back at some point. And that's a talking point you always hear from the, the side that gets blamed for the shutdown. Hey, these people always get paid back. But if you're living paycheck to paycheck for groceries and all kinds of everyday necessities, a shutdown of a week, two, six, eight weeks, I mean, that's a major impact on your life. And listen, this is, you know, it, the debt ceiling, the, the government shutdowns. I mean, that's where the quote unquote fiscal conservatives will say, well, this is where we have to have the difficult conversations. And yes, people are going to be inconvenienced or hurt in the process, but they will argue long term, we are doing things that this country cannot sustain. Do you want entitlements to go unfunded? Um, you know, we have the estimates 10, 12 years out from many of those programs. And I know a lot of Folks say, I paid into it, don't call it an entitlement, but that's just sort of the umbrella term. Yeah. Um, those things are insolvent in 10 to 12 years in many cases. So do you have pain now, pain right. then? We have to pick our poison. Yeah, pain for, uh, with no disrespect, a relative few for a shorter term than for m many more people uh, down the road, obviously, is the is the argument. Um, mm -hmm. uh, New Jersey Senator, Democrat Bob Menendez, up on federal bribery charges again. Um, are you surprised about the widespread calls for him to step down? It's been very quickly, mm -hmm. well over half of his uh, fellow Democrats in the Senate said, look, Bob, you got to go. Well, being defended by people like GOP Senator Tom Cotton, um, it's very interesting, which it makes you immediately think, all right, what's the political calculus here? I mean, he would be up for reelection next year. New Jersey, um, Democrats beyond New Jersey in the U.S. Senate nationwide, like they don't want the possibility that that seat could in any way be vulnerable. And some folks would say, oh, it's a deeply blue state. Not that long ago, they elected Chris Christie. Yeah. So, you know, New Jersey can do things besides blue. Um, and I think that because the calculus is, gosh, he would be it would be so difficult to have him in that seat, whether he would run again or not, if he's still holding it while he's going through these trials. Why not, the Democrats will argue, have him step down, get a placeholder that somebody then would run from that seat as an incumbent, essentially. And there are people there, you know, lining up to do it. Sure. So yeah. to me, it's not just, oh, suddenly we all have a deep ethical concern, <laughs> just like Republicans are not calling for George Santos to leave the House. I mean, there's always a political calculation behind these things. So um, I think it's more about 24 than it is simply 
the allegations are very detailed and do not look good for him and his wife and their associates. But again, I, you don't know what a jury's going to do. And what if uh, he came through this and wasn't convicted? Um, we know that for some people, getting indicted actually helps them in the polls. Yeah, <laughs> for some, for who, for who are you talking some about? Some people. Um, yeah, and the, the first case was much more. It involved a friend, and you know, it involved a line between what's, more what's amorphous, right, right? What's the line between friendship and bribery? Um, right. I mean, gold bars and stacks of cash right. in your clothing at home. This case this is, is a, different questions. Yeah. All right, finally, Shannon, uh, you hit your Fox News Sunday one year anniversary a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. We have not spoken since then. Congratulations. Um, Thank what's, you. What's something interesting about the job? That listeners might not know that maybe that maybe you didn't know before getting into it um, behind the scenes that surprised you. Uh, I don't know that it was a total surprise because I'd filled in some on the show, but the amount of negotiating you have to do with people from the White House on down to to lock in your guests every week. That's half the job. I mean, yes, there's a ton of research and I enjoy all of that. I love that kind of stuff, the homework. But the back and forth, when you think you've got a guest, they're a yes, you're getting ready to promote, something gets yanked. I mean, there are times Friday night or Saturday, we still don't know what our show is going to be on Sunday. So um, the booking wars every week and negotiations with the White House are always really interesting. And all of the gears that have been grinding and all of the things that you've been doing with building relationships and getting those negotiations done. Um, that's your payoff there on Sunday. But there are also, you know, the podcast, the radio, the TV hits, the next two days I'll be filling in on the five. And so there's always something to keep you engaged and busy while you're doing that tightrope dance to get to Sunday. Well, thank you for um, pretty regularly giving uh, giving us a few minutes of your, busy, of your busy week. Shannon, good to talk to you. Thanks. Have a good one. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. This is Jason Rance with your Fox News commentary coming up. We've seen it for months in smash and grab robberies and looting, taking shoplifting to a higher level, like this week in Philadelphia. <laughs> Laughter amid the mayhem. Brazen mobs went wild in city center Philadelphia, looting stores, most with little consequence. About 100 people, fueled by social media, descended downtown, breaking into the Apple Store, Lululemon, liquor stores, and other businesses to seemingly steal as much as they could. And the Fox's Eric Sean reports there have been more than 50 arrests. Interim Philadelphia Police Commissioner John Stanford says... Everybody in this city should be angry. Everybody that, that goes to these businesses should be angry. Target's CEO says thefts involving violence or threats of it are up 50% this year. For 2022, the National Retail Federation says retail crime accounted for $112 billion in losses for companies. Organized retail crime has been around for a long time, or simply uh, theft. Jerry Storch is CEO for Storch Advisors. He used to be the CEO of Toys R Us and Saks Parent HPC and is an ex-Target vice chairman. But what we have right now is a totally different scale and reach of activity. Most of the damage is done by organized groups, and a lot of it is actually pretty big business. But what's changed is two things. First of all, the Internet. That enables to organize these activities very rapidly, as we saw in Philadelphia. But even more importantly, 
the internet through their marketplaces provides an easy way to fence the stolen goods. The second thing that's changed is that in recent years, prosecutors and local governments have reduced the penalties and also limited law enforcement for retail theft. So that changes the risk benefit analysis for the criminals. So even if they get caught, they don't do the time. Sometimes some of this is at night and stores aren't open anymore in some cases. They just, but they're able to go in and just grab what they can. And there's not much that the stores can do in that situation, right? Yeah, the, the criminals have this timed pretty accurately. They try to stay just a few minutes in each store so that they're in and out before any law enforcement can respond or anyone can respond for that matter. So, so they pay a lot of attention to uh, exactly what's going on in the environment around them, and, uh, and they won't linger. But sometimes it's while the stores are open. Sure. Uh, to some people, it doesn't matter. The risk is, of course, they could hurt someone, whether it's store employees or customers, and, uh, and that's a bad mistake for the criminals because then they have a more serious crime that they've committed. But they're told, don't bring guns, don't bring weapons, by the way, for these smash and grabs, because then if you get caught, then you really will go to jail. But uh, as long as you don't do that, these, they get arrested and they're out the next day. I was at a mall near me a few weeks ago. I was at a Dick's Sporting Goods, and it's, it's one of those where it's attached, it has an entrance to the mall. So you go up the escalator, you go into the mall. So it's easy in and easy out from the street. And as I was going up the escalator, somebody was coming down running and they had a giant bag over their shoulder. Now, security was chasing, but there was no way they're going to catch the guy. And he ran away. And then I said something when I was buying what I was buying. And I said, does this happen a lot? And she said, all the time. Absolutely. Dix is one of the retailers, along with Target, that's been very outspoken about this. And why do they steal product from Dix? Well, you know, athletic shoes are one of the highest value items that the crooks steal, and they're one of the most easily resold, whether it's in physical or online marketplaces. So Dix is a big target. All right, you, you talk about where there's this black market, essentially, for the goods. How does that work, and where are these things just sold? Just on online sites? So uh, in the old days, which wasn't that long ago, they were sold principally at flea markets and swap meets. So you could go to any of these big flea markets and start looking on the tables there, and you'd find product that was obviously stolen frequently as a private label product from individual retailers. Mm -hmm. And they could try to hide it. You know, it was uh, it was pretty straightforward. Now they're much more sophisticated. So there are whole operations, for example, where they change lot numbers and expiration dates on products where they, uh, you know, uh, uh, make it more difficult to identify the source of the product. And then principally, the products are sold online. Originally, it was through the most obvious marketplaces like like an eBay, for example, uh, some people call it the world's largest fencing operation, or Amazon's marketplace, places like that. There's been some crackdown on that, and including federal legislation, where the marketplaces are more responsible than they used to be for the resale of obviously stolen goods. But so now uh, a lot of the products change hands or what, what, what you might call the dark web. Yeah, and as someone who's been in this industry for a long time, theft has been a part of it. Shoplifting's always been a part of it. So how much worse now do you think it is versus just a couple of years ago? Well, it's always difficult to quantify, but it's it's many times worse, I'll tell you that. And uh, it was not unusual, for example, for flash thieves to run into a, uh, a store and steal a stack of Levi's jeans, for example, because those could easily be resold and sometimes shipped off to uh, out of the country uh, for resale. But in today's world, uh, there's uh, easily $100 billion of stolen product now. It's it's uh, way out of scale 
from anything that we've ever seen before. And it's, and it's growing quite rapidly. I think some estimates are 20% per year, which uh, you know will double in four to five years. For the employees, when it happens, when the stores are open, there have been stories where the you know people have chased somebody out into the parking lot or whatever, maybe even stopped them. And then they've been disciplined or even fired by their own company. So what should employees do? What are they told to do? Most retailers do not want employees tackling the crooks. Yeah. That is not part of their job description. That's what the problem is, is that if uh, everyone starts being a vigilante, then uh, then we're going to see a lot of the associates getting hurt. And we don't want that. Now, when I was in high school in the 1980s, my first job, you may remember this store, consumers. It was like a service merchandise. You know, you walked in and you looked at a catalog you decided what you wanted, you brought it up, and then we went in the back and got the products and you were on your way. That model doesn't really, not really out there all that much anymore. But that's one way where it's harder to have shrink. Am I right? Well, unfortunately, we're getting to where a lot of stores are in some way are like that, that consumers or service merchandise type of a business model, because uh, more and more product is being put under lock and key or behind uh, locked glass doors. And uh, that requires uh, pushing a button or calling a sales association to help you get the product, which isn't that far away from your experience that you're discussing from your days at consumers. Uh, the problem with it is it hurts sales. The reason those companies aren't around anymore, the ones that you describe, is because it's it's inconvenient for the customer to wait around to get the product from a retail uh, a runner, and, uh, and they're not going to do it. So more convenient retail formats defeated those formats. But you understand why a store, well, you've seen these pharmacies also doing this, putting some products behind, you know, glass. You understand why they would do that. So how do you have some sort of a happy medium? Because you don't want sales to drop, but you also don't want to have all your stuff stolen. So what are you telling retailers they should do? Well, they have to. If they're going to have the store open, they have to take appropriate security measures, including locking product up. Uh, it's going to hurt sales. It's, this isn't good. I mean, the fact that criminals come in and steal merchandise right there. It's no good. It's no good because it raises the prices for everyone. It causes stores to close in inner cities, which create uh, retail wastelands, which are inconvenient for the vast majority of people who live in these areas who are law abiding. So this isn't good. There's nothing good about it, but you have to deal with it in today's terms. Over the long term, the only solution to this is going to be if uh, law enforcement and, uh, and local politicians get serious uh, about apprehending people who commit this crime and making them do the time. Just the other day, Target announced it will close nine stores next month in Portland, San Francisco, Seattle, and New York City, where shoppers are frustrated in East Harlem. Well, they need it here. Like, we don't have anything else in this, in this neighborhood. What are you going to do? Close one store after the other store after the other store? Target says the locations it'll abandon have an unsustainable business performance. Look, retailers do not close stores lightly. These are huge multi-million dollar investments in each location that have to be written off. These are businesses, not charities. What are they supposed to do? Just keep a store open forever and lose money and, and worse, let their people get hurt? You know, there are stores, I, I've been in one where you don't pay, you, you don't seem like you pay. Like those Amazon type locations where you walk in, you pick something up and you walk out. They just know who that you were there. And it automatically comes out of your credit card that they have on file. Is that yeah, kind of technology better to stop retail theft in the future or, or does it not matter? No, I don't think that's going to be better. I think that could be worse. The, 
The only way it could be better, which is a sacrifice of uh, privacy, would be if uh, everyone's facial recognition information and uh, and uh, cell phone information, I guess, were uh, public and available to retailers. So when, when someone who's a known thief walked in the store, they could be identified immediately. But do we, are we prepared for a world? You know, it feels like a sci-fi movie where there's facial recognition of everyone who walks around and uh, and the crooks are identified and and prevented from from committing the crime before it happens. Are, do we really want a world like that? You know, here we are. It's almost October. So that means we're getting close to seeing all the Christmas stuff in stores. This holiday season, are you expecting the shoplifting, the theft, the shrinkage to get even worse? And is it going to affect the time when they make their most profit? Well, there's no sign that it's getting any better, so I have to believe it's going to get worse. One of the rules of retailing is that they, everyone says, uh, you want to know what's going to happen in the future? What's the current trend? That's going to tell you. And the current trend is accelerating retail theft. Away from theft, we've had, of course, inflation. The last several years, prices have gone up and up and up. I know year over year, the numbers had gone down earlier. They've crept back up a little bit lately. How is that, in your opinion, going to affect the holiday season this year? Well, I, I'm uh, more negative than most commentators on the upcoming holiday season, and I hate to be that way because I always want to be positive about the country and its direction. But the consumers are very strained. A sales of physical goods have been declining when you adjust for price increases. You know, we just say how many units of products have been sold. Uh, sales of physical goods have been declining for every month for a year now. Consumers have been spending on services, so everyone says the consumer is still healthy. Well. Some of those services are things like cruises and hotels and restaurants, and those definitely have been doing doing okay. But there's a lot of cracks in that now. Those are starting to slow down. So I'm not so sanguine about the health of the consumer, given they're running out of the savings from the pandemic. The data shows that they're going into credit card debt. Credit card defaults are rising. Student loan repayments are coming due. I think this could be a very uh, tepid holiday season at best. Jerry Storch, CEO for Storch Advisors, former vice chairman at Target, former CEO for Toys R Us. Great to talk to you. Thanks so much. My pleasure. And now, some good news. The saying goes, a dog is a man's best friend. But what about a little girl's best friend? A two-year-old girl recently went missing in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. She was outside in Faithhorn and walked away from her house with the two family dogs. Michigan State Police were called out to help around 8 p.m. that night and responded by using both police dogs and drones to search for the toddler. The girl's mom telling a local news network that the police dogs had a hard time searching for the girl because there's a lot of farm animals in the area. Finally, around midnight, a citizen on an ATV found her, safe and soundly sleeping with her dogs. She was using the little dog as a puppy pillow, and the other was laying next to her. State police telling the Associated Press the situation was really remarkable, and the girl was in good health when found. Anna Eliopoulos, Fox News. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Jason Rance. 
What's on your mind? While the Biden administration still refuses to acknowledge the migrant crisis, it's impossible for them to hide the impact their disastrous border crisis is having on Democrat-run sanctuary cities and states. Customs and Border Protection sources confirmed to Fox News that the total migrant encounters for fiscal year to date, 2023, at 2.38 million, have surpassed the 2022 total of 3.7 million, setting a new record. Many of these migrants made New York their end destination, upending the quality of life in a city already struggling with untenable crime, drug use, and homelessness. Mayor Eric Adams warned that this crisis will, quote, destroy New York City, with Governor Kathleen Hochul warning migrants not to come to her state. Well, I sympathize with New Yorkers, or Chicagoans, Denverites, and others, who have to live with the crisis. Voters hold some of the blame. They embrace radical left politicians who proudly signaled their support for asylum seekers. They just never thought anyone would take them up on their sanctuary offers. Some jurisdictions established laws or policies for the first time during the Trump administration, while others strengthened pre-existing ones. But they virtually all had the same effect. An influx of illegal immigrants took these sanctuaries up on their offers for shelter and freedom, putting a strain on local resources. Accepting so many unvetted illegal immigrants led to an increase in preventable crime and negatively impacted the quality of life for residents. Denver codified its sanctuary status on August 28, 2018, after community activists demanded protections against Trump's immigration policies. The Public Safety Enforcement Priorities Act prevented city employees from sharing information about a resident's immigration status, prohibited the sharing of information for the purposes of immigration matters, and forbade law enforcement from detaining an illegal immigrant for the sole purposes of turning them over to the federal immigration officials. Denver's welcoming attitude toward illegal immigrants ended with the Trump administration. While proudly proclaiming to be a sanctuary for immigrants while Trump was in office, the mood changed with President Biden's porous southern border. The city saw a dramatic increase in illegal immigrants in December 2022, and local leaders were unprepared. A steady stream of illegal immigrants was bused to Denver, and the city coped. But then came a much larger group of Venezuelans between the ages of 20 and 40. City leaders didn't know who sent the group, but they were forced to scramble to provide emergency shelter. Less than a month after the surprise visit of Venezuelans, Democrat Governor Jared Polis announced that he was shipping the migrants elsewhere. Polis strained to portray his plan as compassionate. But his actions were almost identical to those coming from Texas Governor Greg Abbott and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, both Republican. Still, Polis got a pass from left-wing national media. Instead, Republican governors earned national headlines rebuking their so-called callous and uncompassionate stunts using vulnerable migrants as political pawns. Unwilling to continue to shoulder the burden of the costs and crimes associated with illegal border crossings, they bust and flew migrants to Democrat-run sanctuary cities, just like Polis. New York Mayor Adams called this unfair. What's unfair for local governments is to bear the burden of an open border and lax immigration policy. It is supposed to be the responsibility of the federal government. But is it unfair for local governments to take on the obligation when they touted their sanctuaries as beacons for immigrants? What was the point of designating itself a sanctuary city, county, or state if they were unwilling to help bear the burden of migrants illegally crossing the border? The radical left didn't think through their plans because their sanctuary declarations were acts of virtue signaling. Their real plan was to burden Republican-led border states while Democrats earned future voters in areas they haven't yet been able to win. Their strategy came back to haunt them, and the residents paid a price. I'm Jason Rance, author of What's Killing America? Inside the Radical Left's Tragic Destruction of Our Cities. 
You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.